The events in the early history of the church replay events that are recorded in the book of Joshua. This is the beginning of a new conquest led by another Joshua, whose Greek name is Jesus. And point by point, we can follow the early history of Acts and see that it's following what happened back in the book of Joshua. Moses delivers Israel from Egypt. He takes them through the wilderness, and then as they get to the edge of the promised land, he disappears. Jesus leads his disciples on an exodus out of sin and death. He leads his disciples on an exodus out of the wicked and perverse generation of Israel, gets them to the edge of the promised land, and then he disappears behind a cloud. Before Moses disappears, he places a, part, a portion of his glory on Joshua. After Jesus has ascended into heaven, he pours out of his spirit on his disciples. When Joshua receives a portion of the glory of Moses, he begins to do Moses' kinds of things. He can divide water and let the people walk through. He can talk to the angel of the Lord. And when the apostles receive the spirit of Jesus, the greater Moses, they begin to follow Jesus and do everything that Jesus has been doing. The mission of the apostles in Jerusalem replicates the mission of Joshua against Jericho. The apostles are supposed to conquer the entire world, witness to the uttermost ends of the earth, but they start in one city. The beginning of the land, the beginning of the conquest is this one city, Jerusalem. Jesus is replicating the acts of his namesake, Joshua, at the beginning of the book of Acts. But not all of the re uh, replays, not all of the parallels are as positive as the ones I've mentioned. After Israel has conquered the city of Jericho, a great city, Joshua takes a few of his soldiers, not even the whole army, to go against the, to go against the much smaller city of Ai. But to everyone's astonishment, the people of Ai fight back and chase the Israelites away. They lose the battle of Ai, the first battle of Ai. After conquering this great city, Jericho. And Joshua goes to the Lord and says, what happened? Why did Ai beat us in this battle? And the Lord says, there's a sacrilege in the camp. There's something that needs to be rooted out of the camp. There's somebody in the camp who has seized my things, my holy things, the plunder of Jericho. He's stolen from me. And until you take care of that, you're not even going to be able to conquer the smallest city in the land. And so they choose lots and eventually down, goes down to the tribe of Judah and eventually goes down to Achan. And Achan and his family are exposed as the ones who took plunder from Jericho. The Lord himself had claimed the plunder of Jericho, but Achan took it for himself. And he is, and his family ended up dead. In Acts, Ananias and Sapphira play a similar role. They sell property and they give a portion of the property to the apostles to distribute to the poor in the community in Jerusalem. But they don't bring the whole. But they claim that they have brought the whole. They commit a kind of sacrilege by lying to the Holy Spirit. And they commit a kind of sacrilege by continuing to use money that they had claimed they were dedicating to the Lord. This is the Lord's money because they dedicated it. But they're still using it for their own purposes. And that sacrilege costs them their lives. Like Achan, they die a miserable death. And great fear comes on the whole church and upon all those 
who heard these things. No wonder. Great fear. This is quite the capital campaign. Donate on pain of death. Instantaneous death at the feet of the apostles. To understand what's going on and why this is such a bad evil, with such a great sin against the Lord, we need to see what's going on in the book of Acts. One of the things going on in the book of Acts is a transfer of wealth, people, authority, and fear from the temple and the temple leaders to God's new temple, the living temple made of living stones, the Christian church, and the leaders of that temple, the apostles. At Pentecost, the spirit glory of God, which has filled the temple and filled the tabernacle, doesn't fall on the temple. The temple is a few blocks away from where the disciples are, but the spirit falls on them. They are the new temple of God. And they begin to claim that they have the name with them. The temple was the house of the name. But now the apostles are saying, we have the name, and the name is the name of Jesus. The apostles become the teachers of Israel. People admire them, and people fear them, partly because of what happens with Ananias and Sapphira, partly because of the power that's clearly uh, emanating from them. People are in fear of them. Meanwhile, the apostles are completely fearless in the face of the Sanhedrin. This is a radical transfer of authority. If you can't make people fear you, you can't really lead them. When fear begins to migrate from one leadership to another, then the leadership is migrating, and the temple elites know that they're losing authority. And the apostles are taking the authority. They can strike fear in the hearts of everyone in Jerusalem in a way that the Sanhedrin and the temple elites no longer can. Acts calls a lot of attention to the feet of the apostles. It's an odd turn of phrase. People sell their houses and sell their fields and bring the proceeds of those sales to the feet of the apostles. Joseph, Barnabas, brings his money to the feet of the apostles. Ananias and Sapphira sell their field and bring a portion of what they get to the feet of the apostles, and then they die at the feet of the apostles. Why all this attention to the feet of the apostles? I think that's just another temple reference. The temple was the footstool of the Lord. The temple was the place where the Lord was enthroned in Sabbath rest. After he had conquered Egypt, the Lord, the Israel built him a palace. And then after he had been up on the mountain, he comes down and he takes his rest above the wings of the cherubim. And the tabernacle becomes the footstool of his feet. And everyone begins to bring treasures to the footstool of the Lord. But now the footstool has shifted. The footstool has changed places. The footstool of the Lord is now at the feet of the apostles. Because the apostles have joined Jesus on his throne, they've entered into Sabbath rest. And so when people have gifts to give to the church, to the living temple of the church, they bring those gifts to the feet of the apostles. We should expect an outpouring of treasure if this is the beginning of a construction of a temple. That's what happens when temples get constructed. Remember, after Israel has built the tabernacle at the foot of Sinai, you have this procession. A leader from every tribe of Israel brings in great treasure, silver and gold, 
bowls and plates, enormous amounts of rich wealth that they're bringing and dedicating to the Lord, a procession of treasure coming from Israel to the footstool of the Lord. And the same thing happens when David builds the temple. David prepares for the building of the temple. In 1 Chronicles, he's gathering all the material that Solomon is later going to use to build the temple. And he donates an enormous amount of gold, silver, bronze, and iron. And then all the nobles of Israel, all the nobles of Israel pitch in and bring their treasures. There's a procession of treasures into the temple treasury so that the temple can be built. And all of that becomes holy. In the Bible, a holy thing is something that belongs to the Lord. And if an ancient Israelite dedicated something to the temple, that became the Lord's thing, and the person who donated it couldn't use it anymore the way he used to use it. If you have a silver bowl or a silver spoon or a silver fork that you think might work well in the temple, and you give it over to the priests, you can't take that home and use it for Thanksgiving anymore. It belongs to the priests. It belongs to the Lord. He's claimed it as his own property. And all that treasure that the nobles of Israel bring in to the tabernacle, all the treasure that David and the nobles bring into the temple becomes the Lord's treasure. And they're not allowed to use it as they would anymore. That's the sin of Achan. Achan takes something that belongs to the Lord, that's supposed to be dedicated to the Lord's house, a holy thing. Something that God has made a special claim on, and he uses it, he's going to use it to bolster his own wealth. It's an act of sacrilege. And that's the sin of Ananias and Sapphira as well. We don't know exactly what they said to the apostles, but we can imagine it's something like this. We sold a field. We're dedicating the price of the field, the profit we got from the field, to the apostles. And we're giving it over to the apostles, over to the Lord, laying it at the feet of the apostles. They imply or say that they're given the whole of what they had, had profited to the Lord. But they give only a part. And then they're using the money, the rest of the money, God's money, God's holy things, they're now using to buy and sell in their, for their own uh, sustenance. That's an act of sacrilege. It's defiance of the Lord. It's one of the worst sins that you can find in the Old Testament. To take something that belongs to the Lord is one of the greatest sins. You are holy things. We want to apply this in the New Testament. You are holy things. Don't you know that the Spirit dwells in each one of you? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. You can't use yourself profanely. You can't use yourself for unholy uses because that is not only sin in itself, but it's an act of sacrilege because you are a holy thing and you can't devote yourself to unholy uses. You belong to the Lord. Ananias and Sapphira commit a sacrilege and then lie to the Holy Spirit about it and then are instantly killed. This practice of the early church, people selling their property, selling their homes, not taking money from their surplus, but taking money and sacrificing things that they own in order to provide for the poor of the church. That's what's happening here. That's often understood to be something that's peculiar to the first century, and specifically to the church in Jerusalem. And there certainly are some unique features to the situation in Jerusalem. 
All these events that are recorded here are taking place a few weeks after Pentecost. We know that many, many people came from many places to be at Pentecost, to be at the Feast of Pentecost, and the Spirit fell, and now things are beginning to happen. They're still in Jerusalem, and they need help because they've been traveling. They're strangers, and so the church provides for them. That's true. It's also the case that Jesus has already pronounced a doom over Jerusalem. Jesus said, there will be a time within this generation before you taste death, before the apostles are all dead, there will be a time when not one stone is left upon another that is not torn down. Jerusalem is not a good real estate investment at the moment. The apostles know that. The Christians know that. They know this is coming. They know a great catastrophe is ahead for Jerusalem. And so there's a motivation on that score to get rid of their property. That's true. We should also notice what the apostles are doing here. The apostles are not collecting all the wealth from everybody who joins the church, putting it into a common purse and a common kitty, and then distributing everybody's uh, property as needed. That's not, what, that's not what's happening. Peter makes it clear to Ananias, don't you know that when it remained with you, you were free to do what you wanted with it? You didn't have to sell it. Nobody's forcing you to sell it. And don't you know that once you sold it, you didn't have to give the proceeds to the church? It's not as if the church is gathering all the wealth of all the members and then distributing out so everyone has an equal salary coming from the church. That's not the system that's in place here. In fact, I think it's a much more challenging system. There's some comfort in turning over all your wealth to somebody else and say, just manage it for me. But the way that the early church is operating, believers have to make their own decisions. How much is enough? Should I sacrifice this in order to care for the poor in the church? Or should I hang on to this because I need it for my, uh, my family or my grandchildren, an inheritance for my grandchildren? Those are choices that they have to make. And the system that's set up forces them to make those choices. It doesn't leave all those choices to be managed by the apostle. All of that's true. But if we stop there, then we miss, I think, the challenge of this passage. We let ourselves off the hook. Yeah, early Christians needed to be radically generous in order to support the poor in their community. They were willing to give up things that they needed, sacrifice their own needs in order to care for the poor. And we might convince ourselves that we don't have to do that anymore if we think this is just a first century custom. But it's clear that Luke is presenting this as part of the communion of the church. The church is a koinonia, a communion, a communion in the spirit, a communion of gifts, a communion in in mission and purpose. The apostles are of one mind and of one spirit. All the churches of one mind and one spirit communing together. And communion in goods is a part of that, according to Luke's presentation. Consider a couple of points. Several times in the early chapters of Acts, Luke includes a summary of the things that the church is doing on an everyday basis. He includes some big incidents, narratives of big incidents, and then he goes back and includes a summary of what the church is doing on a day-to-day basis. They're clinging to the apostles' doctrine. They're gathering to break bread together. They're gathering together for prayers. They're having meals together and from house to house. Those are the things that they're doing on a daily basis. In addition to these big public events 
than Luke records. And when Luke gives us those summaries, he includes the selling and sharing of goods as part of the normal life of the church. He does that in chapter 2. He does that again here in chapter 4. In fact, this is a gift of the Spirit, this willingness to give up your own property for the sake of your poor brothers and sisters is an act of the Spirit. 4 verse 31, the Spirit comes and shakes the place where they're praying so that the people uh, speak the word of God with all boldness. And then immediately, they are one heart and one soul. And the expression of that unity is the fact that they don't claim that anything belongs to them as his own, but all things are common property among them. They're willing to give up what they have for the sake of their brothers. If clinging to the apostles' doctrine is a normal, permanent part of the church's life, and it is, if gathering together to break bread is a normal part of the church's life through all the centuries from the first century to whenever Jesus comes back, if that's true, and it is, if prayer is part of the normal life of the church, then this kind of radical generosity is part of the normal life of the church. That's how, uh, that's how Luke is presenting it. A spirit-filled church looks like this. A spirit-filled church is a church that clings to the apostles' teaching, that gathers together at the Lord's table, that breaks bread together, and that has fellowship with one another. Not fellowship in the sense of talking about the iron bowl out of the narthex after church. Fine thing to do. But fellowship meaning communion. In fact, in chapter 2, Luke connects communion with holding everything in common. Koinonia and koinon property. An expression of their communion with one another as persons. Uh, one expression of that is their communion together as, with their uh, material wealth. We even have a name to go with this practice. Joseph, known as Barnabas, right at the end of chapter 4. He's kind of summarizes the whole life of the church. He's a Levite, so he's a descendant from a priestly line of Israel, but he's also of Cyprian birth, which means he's probably a Gentile in nationality. He's probably a convert and has been plugged in to the Levitical tribe. Joseph Barnabas uh, brings together Jew and Gentile in his own person. He's a son of encouragement. He's exhorting and encouraging the brothers. And he's an example also in the way he uses his property. He owns a tract of land and he sells it and brings the money and lays it at the apostles' feet. He is a Levite indeed. You might remember the Levites didn't inherit any of the, any of the land that belonged to Israel. Their portion was Yahweh himself. And Joseph Barnabas takes the body of Christ as his portion. He's willing to give up his own land to have a portion in the body of Christ, to share his portion with the body of Christ. He's a true greater Joseph. Joseph fed his brothers, and Joseph Barnabas also feeds his brothers. And we also find not only uh, in the early chapters of Acts do we find this kind of communion in goods, we find it extended through the rest of Acts. We heard about it in our epistle reading this morning at the end of Romans, where Paul is writing to the Romans and he's talking about his upcoming journey to Jerusalem and he's going to Jerusalem bearing gifts. He's been collecting money from the Gentile churches to take care of the needs of the saints in Jerusalem, people that they've not met, people they've never seen, people who are of a different ethnic background than themselves. And Paul sees this as an expression 
of the communion of goods that exists between Jew and Gentile. The Jews have shared their spiritual goods. The Gentiles have shared their material goods to relieve the poverty and the famine in Jerusalem. The word for property that's used here in Acts 4 and 5 is a very broad one. It doesn't just mean material property. It means something like your being or your substance. It includes not just the things that you own, but everything that you have. All your talents and your gifts, your abilities, the person that you are, that's part of your property. And the principle that that Luke is laying out here, the principle is that you are not your own. Your substance doesn't belong to yourself, whether it's your spiritual gifts or your material property or whatever talent you might have. It doesn't belong to yourself. It belongs to Jesus. And it's the common wealth of the church. The Spirit gives gifts of teaching. The Spirit gives gifts of help. The Spirit gives gifts of administration. The Spirit gives all kinds of gifts. None of them is to be used for the sake of the person who receives the gift. The person who's gifted is is the common property of the church. Use it to build up the church, to edify the church, to build up the temple of God. And the same principle Luke is showing us, the same principle applies to our material goods. Our material goods don't belong to us either. And our overriding goal, our overriding principle must be they are not our own. They are the commonwealth of Christ's body. Or as Peter says when he heals the lame man, what I have, I give you. As long as the church continues to be a temple in construction, which it will continue to be until the last day. There should be continuous procession of treasures into the church to care for the least members of the church, to make them adornments of the living temple of God, to enable them to contribute their own gifts to the church. That's the point of sharing the goods of the church. Not to make somebody dependent on the church, surely. Not simply to give them a living wage, The reason why these goods are given to the apostles and then distributed to the poor is so that the poor can fully participate in the life of the church. And they don't have to be scrambling around to know where the next meal is coming from. They can use their gifts to build the church. They can become adornments of the temple of God. And I think in closing, there's another specific reason why this is going on in the early church, and it applies, I think, to our situation today. The apostles and the church find themselves in a position of persecution. The temple elites see their authority slipping away. They see people migrating from the temple over to the living temple of the church. They see the apostles growing in prominence. The apostles growing in respect because they preach with authority and not as the scribes. They become envious and they want to stop it. They want to make sure that this movement doesn't continue. And so they arrest the apostles. And then in the next episode, they're going to arrest and flog the apostles. And in the next episode, they're going to arrest Stephen. And before his trial is even over, he's taken out of the the city and stoned. Now in that situation, people are going to have their lives at risk, their homes at risk, their property at risk. We know from other parts of the New Testament that this is a reality for some of the early Christians. The early Christians really do lose homes and property. 
They lose everything. Now think of the two possible scenarios. One scenario is that they're left out there on their own, having to fend for themselves. They risk losing everything if they stand faithfully witnessing for Jesus, and there's no support coming from the church. The other scenario is that they have the church's gifts at their back. They know that the church is going to support them. They know that they, if they lose their homes, if they lose their, uh, their property, if they're in danger of their lives, they have people who, who have their back. All of the world people are in exactly that situation. Right now, today, all over the world. People are in that exact situation. They are in danger of losing everything because of their faithfulness to Jesus. And they need the church to be supporting them so they can survive and rebuild their lives. And they aren't tempted, they aren't tempted to compromise and hedge because they're fearful of losing their living or their homes. So far, persecution in this country is very mild. It may stay mild. I think it's going to become more intense. And there may well be people here, as I've said before, there may, may well be people here whose livelihoods are endangered because they are standing for Christ. The question is, is there going to be a line item in the budget to support them? If they're losing their income, if they're losing their homes, that's what's happening. One of the things that's happening here in the early church. That's what bolsters the courage of the early Christians. It bolsters their courage because they know that if they lose homes or uh, homes or families or wealth, they have all this wealth at their disposal. The church is going to provide for them. This is how the church, as the new army of the new Joshua, provides for itself by the treasures that we give sacrificially in order to help everyone to contribute to the building up of the church. This is the fast that Isaiah calls for, the true fast. Clothing the hungry, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless. And Isaiah says when a church does that, when Israel does that, then light shines out like the dawn. And the nations are brought to that light. What an Advent discipline. If you want to engage in an Advent fast, think of the true fast of Isaiah. Think of giving sacrificially to support the church so that it can be built up as the glorious temple of God on earth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together.